today called in the cavalry. The president saying America is on a wartime footing. As governments around the world respond to the coronavirus pandemic, there have been many calls for wartime mobilization and language of wartime footing, with U.S. President Donald Trump invoking the National Defense Production Act and even calling himself a wartime president. Yeah, I look at it, I view it as a, uh, in a sense, a wartime president. I mean, that's what we're fighting. In the United Kingdom, too, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has used similar language to call on citizens to band together and fight the enemy virus. Act like any wartime government and do whatever it takes to support our economy. This is, in effect, a government on a wartime footing. If this language of wartime mobilization recalls World War II for people across Europe, North America, and Asia, then it also raises questions. What did mass mobilization campaigns during World War II look like, especially in Japan? How might we learn from the history of wartime mass mobilization to suppress COVID-19 today? And what impact does this history of wartime home front mobilization have on reactions to the pandemic? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the history of mass mobilization campaigns in World War II, I talked with Dr. Paul Kreitman, professor of 20th century Japanese history at Columbia University. Dr. Kreitman recently published an article in The Diplomat entitled Going to War Against Coronavirus, Lessons in Homefront Mobilization from Wartime East Asia. I first asked Dr. Kreitman to tell us what inspired him to write this article. Well, I, I think in a very obvious way, a lot of us are thinking about the same thing at the moment, and that's the, the COVID-19 pandemic. So obviously this has been a matter of great interest to myself and many other people. This was almost a form of therapy, I have to admit, of trying to process you know, what the hell is happening in the world and what this means for me personally, my family, and many other people. And I suppose turning to history is my way of trying to process this kind of wave of anxiety into something possibly productive. So that, that's really what, where, where it came from. And in terms of the, the wartime aspect, obviously this has also been in the media a lot. So Donald Trump, but also Xi Jinping and Boris Johnson and Macron. and Almost every major leader has, has made this wartime comparison without being really specific about, about what that actually means to go to war against a virus. And so I, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of play with some of the actual history of wartime mobilization and see if there are any lessons that we can learn from the way that countries fought each other during the Second World War. And as you wrote about in the piece, the two aspects of these wartime footings that these national leaders have been talking about have been nationalization of industries and state support of the economy. But there's been little discussion of the kind of mass mobilization on the home front that was seen during previous wars, especially World War II. So can you describe for us some of these mobilization policies that you have in mind? So there are a number of things I touch on in the article. There's things like mobilization medical resources and doctors and equipment and even blood people's blood that was you know, there were these uh, blood donation drives to literally transport the serum of people's bodies to the soldiers fighting on the front and there were also savings mobilization campaign people selling war bonds and um, encouraging citizens to be thrifty and recycle and donate pots and pans uh, for the war effort but i think the home front mobilization that is most directly relevant or comparable to what we might need to do in the current situation is air raid defense. And these were mass programs of civil defense whereby states in Japan, in China, in the UK, the USA, Germany, Italy, you know, many combatant states in the Second World War organized elaborate ways of trying to, first of all, defend against air raids by enforcing blackouts to so that bombers couldn't spot major urban areas, but also organizing people into air raid shelters, fighting fires afterwards. 
And these really had a quite a strong surveillance aspect to them. And it was a lot of it was about policing people's behavior, enforcing norms, don't go out at night with a flashlight, don't run away during a raid, stay, hang around and try and put out the fire afterwards. And the parallel that strikes me is that these are really the kind of surveillance mechanisms that you need to fight a pandemic. And this is not just a modern thing. You, you see this in medieval history as well, where you have plagues attacking cities. So it occurred to me that there is a potential parallel there in the ways that combatant states in the Second World War mobilized their populations to enforce norms about air raid defense and how you could imagine states mobilizing populations today to enforce norms about social distancing, making sure that people don't socialize too much, that if they're sick, they stay at home, or even that they go to quarantine hospitals so they don't infect their family members. These kind of measures are things that are being talked about and actually being deployed in mainland China, but also in Korea, in Taiwan, in Singapore, in many places where they're dealing with this heartbreak relatively effectively. And they're the kind of things that I think will need to happen if liberal democracies want to suppress the pandemic. That's a big if. In the article, you specifically write, how might we learn from the history of wartime mass mobilization to suppress COVID-19 today? So apologies for stealing your words here, but let me repeat that question back to you. What lessons might we learn? So I think you have to be upfront about the cost that is imposed in terms of violating civil liberties and just the kind of the petty hardships that people had to suffer to comply with this kind of barrage of regulations in terms of I don't go out at night. And I guess you could also compare things to savings drives where people are being cajoled or pressured into buying war bonds that sometimes after the war and they, they end up valueless in Japan and, and Germany too, the hyperinflation after defeat, wiped out the value of those bonds. So people were being pressured, you can call it suasion, call it coercion, but but certainly pressured to make, you know, very real sacrifices for the war effort. And there's something quite illiberal about that. Uh, I think that has to be acknowledged. That said, I think one of the things that people are quite rapidly having to come to terms with is that there is no liberal way to suppress a pandemic. It just cannot be done. It does entail violation of civil liberties in really profound ways. Stay at home orders, lockdowns, call it what you will, forcible quarantine. These, these kind of measures, you know, they are oppressive, but they are probably necessary to flatten the curve uh, in a way that will stop healthcare systems from being overwhelmed around the world. You were talking before about how writing this piece was kind of a way to process what's going on in the world now and, and kind of bringing our own expertise as historians to bear on this and a kind of personal therapy even. And that's a really good reminder about how, you know, we as historians are still people processing things that are going on around us. And with all of this talk about home front mass mobilization, it reminds me of these, you know, keep calm and carry on t-shirts that yeah. you know, have become popular in recent years. And of course, now with you know, coronavirus coming up, there's new versions that say, keep calm and wash your hands, uh, which sure. seems to be kind of, a, a, you know, exactly the kind of mass mobilization campaign that you're talking about. And perhaps something else is necessary to keep people motivated, such as a t-shirt saying, keep calm and wash your hands. I would like to think so. Yes. T no, t-shirts <laughs> can't do any harm. Yes. I think there's, the, the, I mean, obviously this is one of those iconic um, images of the Blitz, but I think it was never actually used in the Blitz. It was designed by the Ministry of Information, but was never actually printed, or it was kind of kept in a filing cabinet. So that is also a kind of mythical thing. And, and while I, I don't want to denigrate the importance of these kind of suasion campaigns, right, to promote hygiene and stuff, I think they need to be supplemented over the long term by something more structured, which is a kind of um, has an institutional form, as well as just discourse, I, I suppose. 
there's something so you know i guess you would say stereotypically british about it the kind of stiff upper lip attitude well, and the simplicity of the campaign and all that well so in the the first version of the article that i wrote which was slightly more polemical and feverish and i, I did tone it down a bit for the diplomat but the first version was much more uk centric and it as a kind of point of departure i did want to address the myth of Blitz Britain. Hmm. Um, this, you know, the whole idea about we're stoical, we're stiff up a lip, we kind of, we just get down and we, you know, persevere and, and, you know, push through it all. And this is government propaganda. It was created by the Ministry of Information to try and bolster morale on the home front. And I don't think it has any particular basis in reality. I don't think there is any national culture of us being stoical and determined. This is, this is PR. And it gets a bit dangerous when governments start believing their own propaganda or recycling. I think Boris Johnson is utterly enamored of Churchill and, and all this wartime myth-making. And this, I think, informed certainly early on his, his hope that he could just ask people to stay at home and wouldn't need to have any form of compulsion. And that was abandoned quite quickly after a few days. And now they have put the police on the streets and stay-at-home order, and you can get fined for going outside. So there was a, a week, which may turn out to be quite an important week, when the UK government did think that just appealing to the bit spirit alone would do the job, but it didn't. As you just mentioned, the first draft of your article was a little bit more England-centric, and you know, obviously you grew up in England. But since then, you've spent a lot of time studying and in, now teaching in the US, and I understand now you've been in Japan for some time. So as a historian who's interested in wartime home fronts and has been living in each of these countries, how would you compare the wartime mass mobilization movements in all three countries? And what connection does that history have, if any, to how each country is responding to coronavirus today? Mm. So before I sound off on, on this, I should probably point you and your listeners towards the work of Sheldon Garron, who was my thesis supervisor at Princeton and has published a couple of things on air raid defense. He's kind of the authority that I'm, I'm looking to here. But to kind of summarize crudely his research, the first point is that they are comparable. The things that the UK, Germany, Japan, and the US too are doing or were doing during the Second World War, specifically to prepare for air raids. They were all studying each other. It was transnational. They were they were learning from the enemy and copying them to defeat them in a very direct way. So it's not that helpful necessarily to talk about fascist countries and liberal countries in the way they mobilize their home fronts. Because in fact, you see commonalities across both sides of that kind of fascist slash liberal divide if you want to try and periodize or, or define the Second World War that way. That said, it is probably true that there was more coercion involved in Japanese and probably German home front mobilization than in the UK, in that you look at, say, the system of household associations. In 1940, every Japanese citizen was compelled legally to join one, and they became the kind of the, the basic unit for organizing home front defense. In the UK, you never get anything quite as regimented as that, but you still do get conscription of people to act as fire watchers, for example, people whose job is to sit on top of a building during an air raid and watch out for a bomb falling, which obviously is a pretty unpopular job for people to do. So there weren't enough volunteers, you know, quite early into the war and the UK government had to conscript people to kind of do those quite dangerous jobs. So in that sense, they're quite comparable. In terms of how have these different wartime experiences left legacies that might be relevant to the current crisis? If anything, it, it's sort of perversely the opposite in that what's interesting to me at the moment is the Japanese government really has quite limited options in terms of forcing people to obey 
even quite basic orders to, you know, to stay quarantined in their own homes. And this is seems to be in large part because of the SCAP constitution, which was drafted by the American occupiers after the war, was drafted in a hyper-liberal way. It's more liberal in many ways than the US constitution. And so this has kind of constrained the Japanese government from pursuing some of the coercive measures that you're seeing, for example, in the UK, and I think you will see quite soon in the US as well. So I was looking at a thing in the New York Times where states and even local governments in the US have the power to forcibly quarantine. And the UK government has just passed emergency legislation that has empowered the police again to forcibly quarantine someone suspected of having COVID-19. The Japanese government has just passed some legislation in response to the threat of COVID-19, but still does not possess those kind of powers. And if things get really bad in Japan in terms of the spread of the the contagion, and I I think they might, they maybe already are at a tipping point, you know, the past few days, then it's going to be really interesting watching the Japanese government and seeing how they will have the capacity to pursue this kind of aggressive suppression and containment measures that really will infringe people's civil liberties in profound ways. And I understand you're in Japan now. So if I might ask, as you're looking out around the world, reading the news coming out of Europe, coming out of North America, And comparing this to what you're seeing in Japan, have you come across anything that maybe doesn't line up entirely? Or or what is the impression that you're getting in Japan? Well, I think one of the big mysteries that has perplexed many Japan watchers and epidemiologists, and certainly myself, is why the virus has not spread that aggressively in Japan yet. It has been growing for sure, but nothing like the kind of exponential increase that you see almost, you know, everywhere in, in South Korea until they launched their containment strategy in the US, in, in the UK, in Italy and Spain and so on. And this is despite the fact the Japanese government is is not really doing a huge amount that we can see. They closed the schools a few weeks ago, which may have been important and they have been publicizing hand washing and these kind of things. And you do see things are quieter on the streets. But there's no kind of lockdown of the kind that you're seeing in Europe and in the US and in South Korea. Even. There have been these various theories floated that this might be because the Japanese are naturally more hygienic or more obedient or, or less touchy-feely. With the, you know, they don't shake hands, they bow and so on. And while I want to believe that is true, if only for my own personal safety and the safety of the Japanese people, I still can't quite believe it. I think that there is something coming in the post and it is quite shocking how little the Japanese government seems to have done to prepare for this, especially given that they've had a long time now. The Diamond Princess incident happened quite early in the global spread of the pandemic. And I think even the Japanese government will admit that they kind of bungled that. And yet there hasn't seemed to be any kind of drastic move to prepare for you know a, a mass contagion event in Japan more widely. Uh, so that's a huge mystery to me and many other people. And this, I suppose, is the kind of question I'm, I've been grappling with it in that piece I put out in The Diplomat, in that if governments and societies you know, decide they do want to find a way to, to get people to maintain social distancing for months and months, there probably has to be some kind of middle ground between just top-down, total state, police state, almost martial law kind of approach to keeping people in their homes and relying on individuals to you know, do the right thing and be public spirited. I don't think either of those is really going to achieve the kind of granulated, nuanced form of um, social distancing that will be needed to contain this or, or rather suppress COVID-19 over the various ways you know, for months and months until this vaccine is finally invented. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast for scholars of Japan 
bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening. Thank you.